The Sign Out Podcast has partnered with Outdoor by Four to bring you this conversation. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast. Here we interview individuals who are pursuing their passion and who want to share that story. I said, look, I'm single. I have no dependents. I would love to work anywhere that ends in a stand, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, something remote, something that would put me really in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so they sent me to South Texas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast. Uh, really excited to come to back today and bring an awesome conversation. We have Theo Ferreira, who is the owner of Rugged Bound Supply. Um, Theo and I both live in the Katy, Texas area, and he's uh, started this company, Rugged Bound Supply, that is definitely um, for the overland community or the outdoor community, camping and all that fun exploration. But there's a great story behind that. So, Theo, welcome to the conversation. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. So, Theo, let's before we dig into how you started Rugged, Rugged Bound Supply, just give the listeners just a quick overview as to what Rugged Bound Supply is. So, from my accent, you can tell that I'm from Tupelo, Mississippi. <laughs> and there's a backstory to that one. But obviously, I'm not from Tupelo, Mississippi. But um, I came to the U.S. through a long story with oil and gas services from South Africa. Um, and, uh, the, the origin story there is that I was an engineer in South Africa. I was born and bred in South Africa and, uh, wanted to do a job that would take me across the world. And, uh, that brought me to South Texas. And, uh, and that's how I came to the U.S. I didn't actually mean to come to the U.S. It just happened that way. So... You know, this this company is focused on outdoor exploration. As a kid in South Africa, did were you interested? Were you camping? And absolutely, yeah. So in South Africa, we have a thing that's similar to the Scouts, but it's different. It's uh, focused on our South African or our, our Dutch culture, um, and a, a big part of that is is camping and being outdoors. So similar to the Scout program, um, you know, you have a lot of uh, activities and a lot of programs and, and achievements that you try to accomplish outdoors. So we have mountain climbing and canyoneering and, um, you know, living off the land, both inland and coastal areas. So all that kind of um, outdoor uh, experience and adventure is really part of the, um, the, the program and what you're exposed to as a young kid. So I did that from kindergarten up until I was um, in yeah, in high school. So you always wanted to be outdoors. I was always outdoors. And we would, there was this amazing mountain um, outside of where I used to live um, on, a, it was a, on a private piece of land, but we could go there. You could book the time and you had free access and you can go climb the mountain. And on the mountain, there was a, a cave about, about, I would say about 500 meters south of the summit. Um, and so you could overnight there. And there was a water tank, that would take water from the, the fog and you'd sleep there and, and the next morning you would go summit. And that we did that from, you know, from the time we were in elementary school. And so that was, you know, um, overlanding and, and, and adventure. It, it's just for me, it's just a natural outflow of what I, of how I was raised. I actually had the opportunity to go to South Africa and spend Christmas in 2017. We met some friends here. My daughters became good friends with their daughter and they ended up going back. So we went to spend two weeks and we were driving around and I noticed like you would kind of go by a park and the camping there, which seemed to be the standard camping for everyone was more overland like that's really where I got kind of introduced to mm -hmm. that style of like pulling smaller campers that have the big tent that comes out around you mm -hmm. and the vehicle, really vehicle based camping. Um, and I thought that was uh, really interesting. I was like, man, they're really into that over there. And it, w and it was different because I tent camp here in a state park and it's just a different setup. Yeah, so when I first came to the U.S., uh, it was an adjustment for me to understand what camping is in the U.S. Um, certainly, the you know the KOA campground right. image was yeah. a shock to me, right? Right. Um, because it's more RV focused. Um, in South Africa, the campgrounds are much less. Uh, well, they're very organized, but they're much more open space. And so you can pretty much camp, obviously, in your demarcated area, but it's very similar to the, the tented camping spots that you'll have in your national parks and your national forests. Um, 
But beyond there, there's a lot of public space in South Africa. We can go and, and really overland an adventure and get off the beaten track. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a shock to me um, to, to see the difference. I think there's, a, there's this very intentional uh, movement now with overlanding in the U.S., which is very exciting, and that's about pushing the limits to actually make the effort to find that you know, new place we can go and camp. Um, that isn't inside of a cookie cutter place, and certainly, you know, th- that that works for some people, and in some cases, that's that's perfectly fine, and that's where you need to be and where you want to camp. But the idea that you know there's so much out there to see and so much adventure to find, and so many new places to have your kids find a brook to play in, or find a, a, a vista that you can park and camp on and overnight, and the next morning you're the only human being seeing that site in that moment. Right. To me, that's very exciting that people are waking up to that idea of what they can do in the U.S. And there is a lot of land in the U.S. that you have that opportunity, but you do have, you got to go there and find it, right? Where we are in Texas, not as much. We have our work cut out for us. Right. <laughs> yeah, for those listening, Texas is a, has a lot of private ownership of land, so there's not as much public ownership like you might see in the western states where you can really get out and explore and drive Correct. off-road for miles and miles, and you can find that spot. So what, how did you get to the U.S.? I mean, you mentioned your job, but was that was your intention to get to Texas or what, what got you all the way over here? Yeah, you know, it's a funny story. I, I was doing my interview in Cape Town. This was, uh, gosh, 2001. It was in April 2001. And I did my interview and it went well. And um, the reason I was hired, trying to hire on with this company was because a friend of mine was working for them. And every six weeks he would have time off. And he would fly back down from, I think he was in Algeria, in the desert. And I was working a cubicle job, making financial models in Excel. And we would have a beer at the airport, and we would compare notes. Because it was our, both of us, was, it was our first job out of university. And I would tell him about these awesome financial models I'm building for the auto industry in South Africa. And he would tell me, cool story. Um, I was driving a Land Cruiser across sand dunes in the Sahara Desert, and I was shooting holes in the ground. And, you know, it just didn't compare. And so, and so that set me on a path to, to try and get a job with this company. And so I did my interview in South Africa. It went well. And uh, I said, look, I'm single. I have no dependents. I would love to work anywhere that ends in a stan like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, something remote, wow. yeah, something yeah, really adventurous, something that would put me really in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so they sent me to South Texas, um, <laughs> McAllen specifically. And uh, that was not, I mean, that was, that's, so it wasn't planned, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the, when I hired on, it wasn't planned to come to the U.S. And so, so it was by happenstance. And so I saw out my six-year um, visa in the U.S. back then. And so I worked in South Texas. I worked in the Gulf Coast of Mexico offshore out of Louisiana. Um, and then when my six years were up, my visa was up, um, I moved to Scotland. And so we started a new, a new phase in Scotland with the same company. And about three months after I arrived in Scotland is when my mom said, hey, uh, something from the U.S. consulate showed up. Apparently you won a green card lottery ticket or something. And so that's the funny story. I was always entering in the diversity visa program. And so six, three months after I showed up in Scotland is when I learned that I did actually win. And so that started a two-year program, or a two-year process to come back to the U.S. And so, yeah, and, and that's the story of how I came to the U.S., you know, the first time by happenstance and the second time intentionally. So even during their time in the U.S., were you still camping and trying to get out or were you work-focused? I was very work-focused. Um, the problem was I was in South Texas, and so the the— when I had my seven days off, I was 14 on, seven off. So I had 14 days where I worked nonstop, and then seven days I had to myself. And so the first day was a decompress day, where you basically throw out the old milk that went rancid in the fridge, and you go buy new groceries. Um, and so you really only had like three or four days to really enjoy yourself. And so it was very hard to get away uh, very far. So I would love, would have loved to go see the Grand Canyon and go to California and do the do the Rockies, etc. But um, I was kind of stuck in South Texas. Um, now, looking back, you know, I think I could have been more intentional with my time and I could have done a lot more with it. But I went to South Padre Island a lot, so a lot of beach camping. And this was in the day before I owned a 4x4 here in the U.S. So it was very adventurous, two-wheel drive, beach camping. 
Um, nothing revs like a rental, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I tried to camp as much as I could, um, but it was a lot of backpacking style camping, right? So I would take a backpack and I would fly to a place and I would go hike and camp and that would be it, right? So it wasn't any overlanding as we know it today. But you still had that strong desire to be outside. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And so that, that never went away. I mean, my mom and dad, we uh, used to camp um, for our Christmas holiday. And so in South Africa, it's summer and Christmas, right, which is weird. So the schools end, the universities end, um, all the, finan- the financial sector, everyone goes on vacation to the beach. And so everyone brings their caravans, their tent, their you know, overland-style setups, and they pretty much just hang out in a, you know, in a campground by the beach for about a month. And while that's not a super big adventure, the idea of unplugging, not having a TV, this is the day before the cell phones, just waking up with a sunset, going to bed with a sun, you know, with, sorry, waking up with a sunrise, going to bed with a sunset and being right at the beach and fishing, getting your fish from the ocean. At low tide, I would go and clean the calamari that we were going to fry up later in the scottle. <laughs> I, had get that, I had to get that scottle in there. Yeah, good plug there. Um, but um, for us, that was, you know, they were doing that well until my 30s. And so when I would go home into South Africa for Christmas holidays, we'd go camping. So it never, it never stopped. When I was in South Africa around Christmas, we went to the beach a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, everybody was there. The water was absolutely freezing cold. So you were on the West Coast then? Yes. Yeah. It was so cold. So, so fun fact, um, South Africa has a huge shoreline because yes. we're completely, you know, it's like a big U, a U-shape. On the East Coast, there's this warm um, Benguela current that comes down from Mozambique, between Mozambique and Madagascar. And so it gets funneled in. So it heats up between Sri Lanka, India, uh, Eritrea and Egypt, uh, sorry, not Egypt, uh, Ethiopia. Right. And so all that water gets heated up and then it gets funneled down and squeezed between Africa and Madagascar. So by the time it comes past South Africa, it's extremely warm. It's like 75 degrees on a bad, on a cold day, it'll be oh, 75 wow. degrees. So you have to surf in board shorts. And if you drive, you know, five hours to the other side of the country, you get the other current that comes up from Antarctica, um, and it is frigid. It was so, but all those <laughs> South Africans, they were all just out there in the water. Yeah, they're crazy. No, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm from, my hometown is the, in, the, in the middle between these two extremes. And so I'm no, used to normal water. So for me, that would be, I don't know, maybe 65 degrees. Yeah. It would just be nice, warm enough to not have to put a wetsuit on, but cold enough to refresh you and you can actually go and enjoy yourself. But Cape Town, I think, honestly, I think it's like maybe 50 48 degrees, which maybe, you know, if people listen to this podcast up in Minnesota, they're going to think, you know, that's warm. But, yeah, it's it's too cold to swim in on a nice yeah, day. I, yeah, it was really cold. And then the wind. We had a windstorm one day, just, and the kite servers were loving it. But the yeah. sand was just blowing down the beach like sandpaper. Yeah, so you were getting powder, powder coat, and you were getting uh, sandblasted. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so all the body panel um, guys that that do that work in South Africa, and when that storm comes up, they just take all the body panels down to the beach, yeah. and they just they just put them out there, and they just get sandblasted. I could see that. So, uh, how long did the your oil time, your oil career last? Because that that was at some point that was your jumping off point, right? Yes, yes. So that was about eighteen years um, of oil and gas work. Um, 10 years of that was on the oil rigs and then you know the the last eight were more management and um, and you know climbing the ladder um but it never filled me right it never made me feel like i'm contributing to society it never made me feel like i'm doing something that i love um and so the yearning was always there to start my own business and do something that excites me uh, do something that i could maybe make a living doing um, but more importantly, doing something that I could somehow feel like I'm doing something about giving back. Um, and so I decided, uh, look, I mean, I've been overlanding in the U.S. for a while. Um, you asked me before how I was camping, but in 2009, I was driving around in a D1 Disco um, Land Rover with an Easy On tent on the roof. And I was towing a, um, a trailer that was imported from South Africa um, before, a Conqueror trailer. You were definitely um, an early entrance. Yeah, yeah. So this here. was 2009. I was driving around with this setup. And, uh, you know, because that's for me, that's normal, right? 
And I remember people ask me, you know, like, Theo, what are you doing? Uh, what is this? Where are you going? This looks like you're coming from Mars. And I said, well, this is camping. And I said, well, this is, Theo, this is America. When we go camping, we stay at the Holiday Inn. This is what the guys at the office used to tell me, right? So anyway, um, so it's, it, it never went away, this, this desire, right? And, and um, I got to make a stop here on this. There's a sad part of the story. So in 2010, when the BP Horizon rig um, unfortunately exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, we had a crew on that rig. Um, they, they all survived. They got off the day before the explosion, but they were on that rig that weekend. And um, they did a couple of things, right? It, it really put life in perspective for me. And it also allowed me some time to reflect on what I wanted to do because we, our, our activity, because of the drilling moratorium, our activity dropped from, you know, uh, tenfold, right? So we, we were uh, one-tenth of the activity that we were before um, once the drilling moratorium affected all the new drilling permits. And so I had a lot of free time on my hands. Mm -hmm. um, and in that time, 2010, is when I started with the idea of starting my own business within the overlanding space. And back then, um, you know, Overland Expo was like five dudes in a fire pit, you know, um, camping together. And so it didn't, you know, it, it wasn't really a big enough industry at that point for everyone around me to feel excited about it. Um, so the advice I was getting was, you know, it's a pipe dream. It'll never take off in America. You know, tents on a roof, that's such a silly idea. And so I had a lot of no's around me, right? Um, not a lot of yeses. And I didn't stick to my guns, right? I didn't climb in at the time. And I, you know, regret that. Um, but in 2018, um, things in my life changed and, and I was able to take, you know, make, make some decisions for myself. And, uh, and that's when I started the company. So in 2018, I started with uh, Rugged Bound Supply Co. And of course there was a, you know, something I was doing on the side, right? I still had a career in oil and gas, but I believe that if I start something and I nurture it and I grow it and I put energy into it, um, in my free time, then that could be something that I could, you know, move on to. And, and so that's how it started. Did you, were you concerned at all starting that in Katy, Texas? Yes, um, I was, you know, because I knew I'm in the wrong place, so to speak, right? I mean, everyone who is into overlanding and into the scene is either in the Rockies or in the Pacific Northwest or somewhere in California, seems to be. You know, and that's, you know, that's not because people over there have a different mindset about this kind of thing. We have adventurous people all over the country. It's because of the ease of access. Right. Um, and so people in Texas, you know, just have a bigger challenge to overcome with regard to getting to the places where they can go and do this. But yeah, uh, when I started this, I knew that it was going to be a company that's got a footprint in Katy, but works for everyone in the country, right? So I knew immediately that I was going to have something that is based some to some extent in e-commerce initially. But my vision was to create a distribution network that brings amazing South African products that are not in the U.S. to um, dealers and customers around the country. Yeah. So talk about exactly what you're doing with Rugged Bound. Like, what are you? What are your products, and what are you bringing in? And All right. So, um, so Rugged Bound is a um, is an import distributor. Um, so we um, bring in from South Africa off-road products, um, overlanding products that are not present in the U.S. And so the first um, product that we chose to work with was the ostrich wing awning, which actually is the first freestanding 270 awning that was created. And this was created back in 2008. The problem is they focused on South Africa and Australia, and the product never came to the U.S., so around 2013 and 14, I would see on I Hate Mud forum or on Expedition Portal, you know, um, forum, um, I would see people people talk about the ostrich wing awning and they would talk about it as if it's an Australian product. And you would have people actually importing it from Australia from retailers directly thinking it's an Australian product. Um, and I knew, of course, it's an African product. So so this was how I started, right? So I just focus on the awning. Um Looking back, you know, uh, it's a challenge, you know, bringing in a product on the back end of a, of, 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 a, of a growth curve 
um, when a lot of other brands have already been established, when this product is actually the genesis of this category, it's difficult because it, at the end of the day, it's just marketing dollars, right? That speak. Um, and so from the awning, um, so once I had enough uh, traction with the Ostrich awning, I branched out to other products made by the same manufacturer. So we are now the US distributors for big country 4x4. Um, and that's who makes the Ostrich Wing awning. And they also make amazing roof racks. They've been making welded aluminum roof racks, expedition-style racks since the 1990s. So this is going on 30 years. Um, and they make amazing drawer systems as well. So they make vehicle-specific drawer systems that are very efficient with how the space is utilized. So for... Um, you know, dedicated overland vehicles. Um, these drawers are really a go-to option in South Africa. Um, and again, you know, I know there's a lot of options in the market in the U.S. now, but you know, these make these have a specific place in the market. Um, a few years ago, we decided to make a new product for the U.S. market, um, and that it turned out to be a truck bed cover. But it took a long time for us to go through the um, different variations of of what would work. Um, and uh, the designer in South Africa who ultimately designed it, you know, the challenge to him was give us a product that we can use in the U.S. market for the trucks, um, but maybe not just an overlanding, but also the general truck market. And so, um, and so after two years of R&D and tests and development, um, we came up with what is now the Tour Top. And the Tour Top won runner-up for the best new truck SUV and van product last year at SEMA. And we we're very proud of it. Um, and we now have it for most of the new models. Um, and the cool thing about it is it, uh, it is loadable. It's very versatile because you have M8 T-slots everywhere on the top. So for the overlanders, you can, you can bolt anything onto the top directly um, without having to drill into it. Um, and then you can still open it up while it's loaded. So you still have access to your bed. Um, so that's what Ruggedbound does, right? So Ruggedbound is a US distributor for Big Country 4x4. Um, yes, a lot of products from the overland space, but we also now have products from them that are moving outside of the overland niche. Um, but Ruggedbound is first and foremost, you know, uh, an import distributor. So uh, we have multiple brands in South Africa that we've been working with to nurture them to readiness for the U.S. market. Very often we see South African products are very innovative um, and they're very specific to, uh, to a certain demand or certain need, addressing a need. Um, but the companies aren't always ready to deliver products for the U.S. market either because um, they're, they're not the right size, they can't scale, or their branding isn't yet mature enough. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, something as obvious as in South Africa, as long as the product is good, the customer is happy to buy it. In the U.S. market, we need a little bit more because how you market in the U.S. is a little bit different. Um, South Africa is not yet mature on Instagram marketing and YouTube marketing and social media marketing. It certainly is there, but the South African consumer still goes into brick-and-mortar stores and get in, looks and sees what's available there and buys on the spot. Uh, we're in the U.S. market. Um, more and more every single year we see how customers are doing more and more research online and ultimately purchase online as well. So you're really getting to guide these South African companies though. I mean, you're able to, that's a, you're a great resource for them to be able to access a market that they may not even have thought of. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're doing, that's a, and then to, to provide them some of that feedback, like, Hey, this is what we got to do to get it over here, to get it working. I mean, yeah, that, that's a, yeah. that's a really cool to have that access to them and, and for it to be your home country, right? Exactly. So I'm in this unique position because I have now in, you know, enough decades in the U.S. to understand and I'll never I'll never claim to know the American consumer fully because, right. you know, that's an enigma that, you know, even the guys from Mad Men tried to crack for for many, many years. But. You know, at least I have enough experience to know what the American consumer is looking for and, and what they respond to. Um, and I have the South African perspective, so I know the challenges that the South African manufacturers deal with. South Africa has a lot of challenges with basic things like electricity, right? So they have uh, exploding demand for electricity in South Africa with an aging infrastructure. So at the end of the day, they have blackouts. They have rolling blackouts where... 
on a scheduled basis, you're going to lose power to your grid in your area for certain hours every week. And sometimes in summer and winter, it's obviously that's different. So if you think about a manufacturer who is trying to weld or is trying to do powder coating or is trying to, you know, do printing for their products, they have to work around these challenges. Um, and that's just one, but there are many other challenges in South Africa. Um, so having some appreciation for the difficulties that they face um, and having empathy for that, but then also being able to communicate uh, with some confidence and some authority what they need to do to be successful in the U.S. market is something that ultimately that's the value that I bring um, to both my suppliers and to my customers. Well, that's, I mean, what you're doing is unique, right? I don't see other companies that are really focused on South Africa. To, I mean, because when I was over there, you could see, yeah, there's a lot of cool products over there because they're all in the cars and all the, there's a lot of cars loaded out mm-hmm. whenever I was there. But this is a really good way for um, you to be able to do that and to, you know, bring all, bring them to the U.S. I just, because I don't see other people trying to do that. We did a, we did a podcast, uh, it's been a few months ago where we talked to three, uh, three guys who are making products in the U.S. And we talked about the challenges, one, of people stealing their product and just making a cheaper one in right. another market. Yes. Uh, COVID supply challenges. That was one thing we talked mm-hmm. about. And just also, and you talked about it a minute ago, the amount of time and effort of R&D, what it takes to actually design a product and then bring that to market. I mean, that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of resources, and then you don't want somebody to copy it as well. Have you faced those challenges other than, you know, you just talked about the rolling blackouts, but do you face other challenges like people copying your stuff in South Africa and things like that? Great point. Um, So in South Africa, there is a lot of respect for IP, um, implied respect. Um, but there's also a very robust legal system, you know, uh, that's very thorough when it comes to IP protection. Um, as long as your IP is protected, obviously, right? right? Um, in the U.S., I would say I, I'm going to use uh, some strong language. Or I'm going to say I'm extremely surprised at the lack of respect for IP in such a litigious country. So... In the U.S., I, I couldn't believe how much I had to pay for life insurance or for medical insurance. And it's all about liability and it's all about litigation and the doctors need you know, to protect themselves, etc. The hospitals need to protect themselves. So we're, we're living in a very litigious society. Within that society, I find it extremely strange the extent to which products are copied and um, consumers either are aware and don't care or are not aware and the the copycat is selling their products as if they didn't copy it from anybody. So it's kind of like the elephant in the room for me, right? And so for you know, I'm this is a very sensitive topic to me because I brought in a, the original freestanding 270 awning from South Africa from 2008. Um, today, the majority of the market is uh, you know, an Alibaba product. And I say that, you know, without a sense of irony, right? Um, so there's always the situation that your product, regardless of what it is, there's always a situation where your product's going to get copied mm-hmm. and reverse engineered in China and it's going to show up on Alibaba. And anyone with a budget, anyone with the ability to create a brand can create a brand out of thin air put a label on a product and then through savvy marketing and beautiful photos, they can convince the consumer that this product somehow is worthy of them to buy. And so um, the overland industry is not any different from any other industry. Right. But, and specifically in the overland industry, I'm quite shocked at the extent to which products are copied and, and there's not really any, I would say, blowback is maybe not the right word but there's no no fallout well and it takes a lot of resources then to go fight that so you are kind of making that decision like where do i fight where do i don't fight but i think that that does kind of swing into an interesting topic and that's consumer education um i think it's important that the industry does a real good job 
of educating the consumers about where things are made, why you would buy something here. I mean, buying something in South Africa, you are supporting a country that is making their stuff, manufacturing there. That's well, I think I think it's about supporting innovation. Right. Right. Um, you know, IP is a very it's a very capitalistic thing, um, and it's about money and control and all that kind of stuff. But it's really at the core, it's about protecting what's yours. But I think I would rather talk. At, to about it through the lens of innovation. So what's going to happen is if everybody's products gets knocked off in China and you have a cheaper option to go, you know, source that same product, you know, and and you choose as a consumer to buy that product, what's going to happen is over time innovation is going to reduce because you wouldn't re- innovate if you know that there's a high risk that is going to get copied and it's going to be taken away from you anyway. Innovators will never stop innovating, but in a you know, in a, in a in a boundless society, I think the more copying there is, and the more support of the copied product there is from the consumer, the more pressure there will be on innovators to you know innovate less. So, how do you educate your consumers? Um, so I don't I don't like negative marketing, right? So right. I I never I never uh, talk about the competition. I never, um, you know, that's not how I could. Go about right. with 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 my integrity uh, being the only thing that I have in my life. Honestly, uh, for me, it's about focusing on the positives and focusing on what I have to offer. So, um, how we tackle education is through our slogans and our mottos that we use. So, for instance, every time we speak about the ostrich wing awning, we would say the original since two thousand and eight. And at at some point, we hope the penny will drop, right? Um, but uh, if someone asked me around a fireside chat what I thought in private, you know, the conversation can go on obviously much longer, but you will never find me in a public forum speaking ill about anyone specific or any specific product um, as, a, as a way to communicate or educate. That's the way to do it, though. I mean, as a, somebody that owns a business, you're there to sell your product and why it's the best for that person. Correct. I mean, you... you you can't worry about everyone else. You just need to worry about making good products for you and your clients yeah, and going yeah. from there. It's, it's also about positive and negative energy, right? Understanding that things that you do to move forward and be effective, um, all the positive energy you can use, it's, it's finite. And if you take some of that energy and you use it to in negative things to hold you back, then that's exactly what it'll do. So what, what are you, other than the awning, you talked about the truck cover what are your favorite products you have obviously you like all your products but but what are what are i mean what do you really um so, so you know, i what think do you, what um do you really like so i'm very excited about the new truck bed cover right? right because because it is truly unique in the market there is nothing on the market in the truck bed cover space that is loadable and accessible and versatile so there are a few other independent manufacturers of truck bed covers out there. There's one, obviously, that's very popular right now in the overlanding space. Um, but the reality is, as soon as you put anything on a truck bed cover that's loadable at this point, other than ours, you can't open it anymore. So at that point, your truck is stuck closed. And so you also have to drill into some systems to be able to mount things like tracks, etc. So our tour top... I'm very excited about it because of how unique it is in the market. Now, I think it has a lot of potential in the overlanding space. We can we have customers who are putting their tents right on top of it. Really? Yeah, and there's no low bars. You just bolt your rooftop tent with a basic Z bracket or, uh, for instance, Frontrunner make great quick-release kits, right? The, the quick-release uh, tent mount from Frontrunner works great on this because everything is standardized M8 T-slots. So you can put max tracks mounts on there. You can put five, six bicycles on there. You can put a tent and one bike on there. You can mix and match so many different. It's really it's an endless platform for you to bolt any adventure. No matter what your adventure looks like, you can bolt it onto this thing. I, I'm I'm listening to you talk and I'm pulling it up on the website to look at it because I had not looked at that. That is amazing. Yeah, no, because I, it's, thank you. It's it, uh, it's really it's something different. Because I have, I have a Ford F-150. It's 11 years old. Um, I have a rolling metal bed cover on there. Uh, you can't, there's no weight bearing to that. Like you, you cannot, right. I mean, you could put something 
just a little bit on there, but you can't mount to it at all. Right. Um, I love having a truck cover, but when I see this and I think about the uses, I mean, this is way beyond camping. Yeah, exactly. It's endless, really. I mean, it's what you want to make of it, right? And so it is versatile because it has so many MAT slots everywhere, even on the inside. There's already T-slots on the inside too. So you can think molly panels, you can think light fittings, you can put gun cases in there, you can put a tent on there, bicycles, snow, ski, you name it. Anything that you can bolt down to something, you can simply attach to the truck bed cover. But then on top of that, it's a traditional truck bed cover too. It seals, it protects you against water, against rain, snow, dust, um, and theft because it's secure and it locks with a key lock. Um, and it's aluminum. So even if the powder coat does get scuffed up because you went too hard with it in the bush, the, it's not going to rust ever because everything on this thing is all aluminum or stainless steel. Um, so it is really a fantastic product, and it is so new in terms of what it can do that it's challenging to market it unless you're doing it through video. So you can, like on this podcast, people trying to imagine what it is that I'm explaining. But if you see a photo and you see a video of it, you go, oh, my goodness. And so we will be focusing on Facebook marketing. We'll be focusing on more Instagram reels and videos, of course, um, that's coming. But we first had to make sure that we have more models. So we had to do the F-150, the Silverado. The other thing is these are all model specific. So the bracketry, how you install it, is specific to your truck. So there's no drilling. For all the trucks that have threaded holes, there's no drilling. You just bolt it in. There's no bed clamps. Um, so you don't use these um, friction-based C-clamps that you be- bolt on the side of your beds. Our system bolts into the vehicle's holes that it has. So for some models, we actually obviously had to do a little bit more design because for the Ram and for the Gladiator, they have less threaded holes available. And then, of course, the General Motors, the Silverado and the Sierra, they have almost no holes whatsoever that's uh, threaded. So we had to design new things to use in those overlie slots. So everything is made specifically for the truck, so it can bolt right in. And we're working right now on um, building out the marketing and building out the dealership network across the country. And it looks like it's pretty easy to, I mean, you ship it out and it's easy to install. Yeah, it ships out fully assembled because look, there's a fully built and alumina, you know, fully, fully welded and sealed product. So it ships out like a bed frame. So it ships vertically on a pallet and it shows up at your house and it looks like, you know, a big double front door, you know, on a pallet. Um, And so you basically bolt in the brackets uh, in the right places and you bolt in the front uh, uh, chassis section where the hinges are. And then once that's bolted in, all you do is you slide this thing on top, attach the hinges and pop in the gas ruts and you're done. Since I live pretty close by, we can probably get it installed pretty quickly, huh? Sure. <laughs> uh, so we for the F-150, we have the Gen 14 and the Gen 13. So back to, what was it, 2015, I think it is? Oh, I'm 2011. Might have to buy yeah. a new truck for that. So the bed actually changed um, between, between those two generations, and we haven't done that generation just yet. But, um, you know, asking me about uh, what products are exciting, you know, the, the welded roof racks from Big Country – are phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? They're absolutely phenomenal. Um, they have been everywhere. They've been to the Polar Circle. They've been all over the world. Um, and they have a, a very good reputation amongst the people who know what they are. In the U.S., though, obviously, the modular roof rack craze has really taken over. And so while we're offering something that's fully welded, all aluminum, extremely strong and robust and light, it comes at a cost, right? It comes at, it's going to be a little bit more expensive, right? not a lot, but it's going to be a little bit more expensive. And the problem is that because it's welded, every rack is specific to a specific vehicle because the crossbars go exactly where the A-frame, you know, the A, B, and the C pillar mm-hmm. posts are. But we just launched the new Tundra, uh, the Gen 3 Tundra roof rack. Um, and uh, so that's about to get going. Um, and then our forerunner roof rack for the fifth gen, it's been around for a while now, but we need to really start cranking out the, the, uh, the, the awareness and the marketing on that because, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of racks in the market that claim to be the strongest, but um, they, they haven't really done the full comparison. 
So what kind of lead time do, do you get with like the new Land Cruiser coming out next year? Mm-hmm. When would you, when will you get access to like specs on that? So you're talking about the 250? Yeah. Um, okay. So in, in South Africa, all the R&D is done in South Africa. Now, big country are members of SEMA. So they do have access to the SEMA Garage program. However, right. traditionally the scans and everything else that's on the SEMA program aren't good enough to really get into the be, into the weeds right. of how we want to design our roof racks. So we really ultimately need to get our hands on the vehicle and do our own 3D scans. Um, but the 300 series Land Cruiser in South Africa, um, the roof rack for that is already here in my shop. Even though the 300 isn't in the US, it is here in the form of the LX600. So the Lexus LX600 roof rack is the same as for the Land Rover 300. So the 250, I believe it's going to be the same platform as the GX uh, six, uh, sorry, 460 or 450, I think it's called. I think. Or the 550. Um, so we, we will have um, the drawer systems and the roof racks for the Land Cruiser 250 once we have the correct GX model in South Africa because that Land Cruiser 250 is not going to be in the U.S. Uh, it's only going to be in the U.S. market. It's not going to be in South Africa. So, so because the Lexus and Land Cruiser platforms are similar, or the same, rather, in terms of the body, um, for the most part, um, that is our way of getting around um, U.S.-only models. Okay. Yeah, that was one thing about the cars that I enjoyed in South Africa. When you drive by the Toyota dealership, and to me, what looks like this old Toyota Land Cruiser, but it's brand new there. Yes. Like, why can't I buy that in the U.S.? That is so, so cool. Many, so many people ask that same question. Why can't I buy that in the right. U.S.? Um, I got a long, boring answer for you about why, but I mean, I saw one in Katy the other day. Did you really? Yeah. Uh, 79 Series uh, HZ uh, diesel, uh, 79 Series double cab, driving around Katy, and I, I, nearly, I nearly had an accident. It must be 25 years old, huh? Um I cannot confirm nor deny the age of the anchors that I saw, but it did not look 25 years old to me. Wow! <laughs> so it could be it could be here on a, on a temporary import. You know, it could be here on a on a on an off highway only import. There's different ways of doing it, but certainly you know, seeing it here in the wild in in Katy, Texas, was mind blowing. It looked fantastic, but yes, in South Africa we have very strange cars. Um, did you know that we have a Chevy Trailblazer? diesel three liter turbo diesel Chevy trailblazer in South Africa it's a mom taxi so it's a soccer mom car right <laughs> and these soccer moms have an amazing three liter turbo diesel engine in their in their trailblazer and uh you know that's just one silly example right. of the strange combinations that you have in South Africa but yeah the 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 Lance Cruiser 79 series and the 76 series the SUV are still being produced by Toyota South Africa to this day. That's awesome. And I think the FJ Cruiser as well, actually. I'm not sure about the FJ Cruiser, but the, I know the FJ Cruiser was built up until about 2018 in South Africa. Do you get to go back to South Africa much these days? or I try to go once a year, yeah. but you know, uh, we have five kids, my wife and I. Um, and we're a blended family, so I have three and she has two, and so we're five total. And so the logistics of everyone's sport and activities and you know finding the time where everyone's available to go to south africa you've been there you know it takes a long time to get there yes so uh probably we'll have to go in the u.s summer break in the future um but uh we've not taken all the kids yet so not everyone has been back there but uh, my wife and i have been you know twice in the last uh, two years uh, thankfully i would say you're very busy between family and trying to build a company and and create new products that's not even all i do i uh, i'm also a rugby coach um so i coach rugby as well at our youth club here in katy um but do do, do, i'm I'm a busy guy do is there a lot of people that even know what rugby is around here surprisingly yes i mean look i mean katy is a, a very diverse expat community as well yeah that people probably don't realize that in texas specifically in houston Houston is the most diverse city in the U.S. Really? It is. It's more diverse than New York. I didn't know that yes. it had that official title. Right. And I grew up in Katy my entire life. So it is very different today, very different in terms of an international community than what it was in the 80s and 70s. Right, right. I, it, I believe that but for sure. Yeah. I mean, I meet people from 
everywhere. And my kids' friends are their parents are from all over. Yeah. So, it, I mean, I'm jokingly talking about rugby, but there's that international community. And we have one of the largest cricket facilities. Yes. Out, uh, Up you on know, 290. Yeah, on 290. Yeah. I mean... That is a that is an Indian gentleman. I think he's a he's an Indian um, businessman um, who has a vision, right. right, to bring the Cricket World Cup to the U.S. And so that facility is part of that multi-decade vision, right. And uh, when I first came to to the U.S., I found some gentleman from Pakistan and India in South Texas on a dirt patch. It's like the Sandlot, but cricket version, right? right. These grown men <laughs> playing cricket in the middle of nowhere, and they're excited and they're bowling and they're playing and like you know someone hits a ball, they catch catch a make a wicket or something, and everyone celebrates and it's like just like these twenty two dudes hanging out and playing cricket and everyone driving by and thinking what on earth are these guys doing? So in as far a field as South Texas, I was able to see cricket being played. But yes, uh, I, I coach rugby uh, for a youth team. My son plays rugby um, because he believes he's part South African, even though he's born in the U.S., right? <laughs> but obviously he, he has South African roots. Um, so it's important for me that he actually you know, gets to experience it. Um, and uh, so it's getting busy season now because we'll be starting up uh, practice. So we, we, we'll be between football and, uh, and, uh, and summer. Do you find fo- some football kids who transition out of football and go play rugby? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Right. Fun fact, when, uh, when the Seattle Seahawks came out of nowhere and won the Super Bowl, this goes back a, a few years, right? I think that right. was, what year was that, 2008? I'm not sure. I'm going to show my, my, my uh, ignorance when it comes to NFL. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know the exact year. but But uh, yeah, when the, yeah. C- when the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl, they're, they were the number one defensive rated team. Mm-hmm. And they somehow did that seemingly out of nowhere. And for the guys listening to this podcast who, who know the Seahawks, probably know what I'm talking about. They, they, they were okay, but they weren't the best defensively. And so a year or two later, there were some documentaries made about the Seahawks, about their road to being the champions. And when they started pulling the curtain back, it turned out that the Seahawks had a lot of rugby coaches from New Zealand come in and teach tackling. So teach zone defense, teach one-on-one defense, teach uh, you know, tackle technique, and down to like how to tackle the, which part of the body, how your arm goes, where your hand goes, where your head goes. Very, very basic mechanical stuff, um, which is very different from football tackling, right? Um, and so the completion rate went through the roof. And sorry, sorry, but we're also we're talking really technical stuff on a on a I, business podcast about no, tackling th- technique. But it's very interesting. But I mean, if you live in this area, like I do, I drive past a field north of I ten where I see there's rugby over there playing. Yeah, so that's us probably. Yeah. Um, so and so the so the kids who are coming to us are from one of two camps. It's either someone uh, who's an expat right. who, who played rugby themselves and now their kids are in America and they want their kids to play rugby uh, or they just moved in because they're in oil and gas or something um, or they're coming from the football program because the dads or you know or the kids themselves are realizing that there's something they can do in the off season if they're really serious about football and they want to go to a college program and they want to you know go far with football after high school then what, playing another sport um, intentionally right. is going to help you with being a better football player you know, is something you should seek out. And that's where rugby comes in. So our season is after the football season. Um, and our kids who are coming from the football program absolutely love it. The number one thing that they say is, you mean I get to catch the ball? <laughs> you mean to say I can run with the ball? And so they get to do everything. Right. And so once they get that taste of being able to do all parts of the game, um, and then they start excelling at everything, fitness, technical ability, um, reading defensive lines, offensive lines. It's very, you know, it's a much more open game and it's very fluid. So when they go back to football the next season, they're a better football player. They can apply what they've learned. That's that's awesome. So that's definitely uh, keeping you busy. Yeah, yeah. I it's mean, between me busy. kids, rugged bound, um, 
new products and rugby. That's awesome. So Thea, if, if people want to find you, what's the best way they can find you? All right. So uh, our website is ruggedbound.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're on Instagram as ruggedbound, right. as well as Facebook. We're physically in Fulcher, Texas. So we're a little bit outside of Katy. Um, so it's about a 10-minute drive outside of Katy on the west side of Houston. Um, and then we have dealers around the country. So we've got multiple dealers in Houston that carry our product or do the installations of our products. We have dealers in Dallas. Um, we have um, Off-Road Expedition Outfitters in Dallas, uh, Jake. Um, we have Spirit of 1876 in Denver. Um, we're working on signing up uh, with Cruiser Tech in Los Angeles. Um, we have a Defender-specific uh, shop in uh, Portland, um, Oregon. Um, and then we also have multiple dealers in um, Missouri. Um, because obviously we go to Moore Expo quite a lot. So you can find our products in Springfield, Missouri, um, and also in, uh, in, in Nixa. So with, uh, with Chad from Overland Addict. Um, we have some dealers in Florida as well. So we, we're working on getting our products out more and more because we know that because our roof racks are welded, you know, it's easier if the racks are in different places in the country as opposed to shipping them all out of, out of Houston. But yeah, so they can find us on Instagram, um, Facebook, um, and online at ruggedbound.com. Well, if we had more time, I think this is actually going to call for another podcast because you have a couple of defenders parked over there at your (laughs) office that I still want to go check out and hear some stories about those, but I don't know that we'll have time for today. But I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you coming by. This is the first podcast that I've recorded live, not on Zoom, since COVID, and so it's fun to sit down and actually talk face-to-face and have a more intimate conversation. So thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk and I really appreciate the time you gave us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sign Out Podcast. Make sure you check out ruggedbound.com. You can also find their social media links from there. Special thanks to Four Wheel Pop-Up Campers, purveyors of vehicle-based adventure, for their generous support of the Sign Out podcast. Learn more about Four Wheel Pop-Up Campers and their variety of base camp adventure products by visiting 4wh.com. That's F-O-U-R-W-H.com. Make sure you check out our website at signoutco.com. We have a bunch of original design t-shirts and hats and stickers. They're very cool. Check them out. And if you have about 30 seconds, if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. It really helps us out. The music in this episode was made by me, Caleb J. Murphy. And if you want to hear more of my music, check out calebjmurphy.com. Again, thank you for listening to the Sign Out Podcast. And we will talk to you next time. The Sign Out Podcast is proudly brought to you by Outdoor by Four Magazine, a preeminent publication for responsible vehicle-based adventure travel, including overlanding. Outdoor by Four shares family-friendly content that resonates with a broad audience of adventurers, whether in a 4x4 vehicle, on two wheels, in a canoe or kayak, or on foot. Outdoor by 4's focus is on visual storytelling that appeals to all types of outdoor enthusiasts while providing expert advice as well as dynamic photography and stories that inspire. You can pick up a copy of Outdoor by 4 magazine by visiting your local bookstore or by going to OutdoorX4.com. That's OutdoorX, the number 4, dot com.